0: hello this is rabbi daniel Karopkin. welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by maimonides or rambam called more or guide for the perplexed this text has been studied for centuries by great scholars jewish and non-jewish alike it seeks to reconcile aristotelian and neoplatonic philosophy with the torah of our people and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Good morning, everyone. We'll start in just a moment. Okay. If anyone needs a copy of the text, and then we have a handout for today. I did not have a chance yet to post the handout on the Facebook group, but I will post that shortly, uh, today sometime. And today we are studying Vuchim section 1, chapter 6. Just a quick, um, uh, another a housekeeping announcement. Uh, we will not have sheer next Monday or the following Monday. Next Monday is Victoria Day and I'll be out of town. The following Monday is Memorial Day and I'll be out of town. So we'll meet, we'll regroup back here in three weeks from today. Okay, Um, no, I think that it's It's June, June. the following is the following one. Okay, so we're up to chapter 6, let's get our bearings, where were we, where are we going from here? Up until now, the first five chapters, the Rambam has been dealing with various different words and phrases that are contained in Tanakh, that seem to ascribe some kind of physical quality to the ribono O'Shalolam, to the Creator. And the Rambam has felt that it is his duty to distance that type of um, um, attribution to God of any kind of corporeal nature. The question is, is this his project at this point? Because now he's going to discuss two other Hebrew words, which are very much related to each other, And those words are ish and isha, which we translate as man and woman. So the first question is, why does the Rambam discuss that at this point? Some of the commentaries take the approach that this is a continuation of the previous five chapters. And therefore this has something to do with removing some kind of physical attribution to Hashem. In that vein, the Narboni writes that God is known as an Ish-Milchama. Hashem Ish-Milchama Hashem Shemo. God is a man of war. Now, if you're going to describe God as a man, that, that, um, that implies that there's some kind of relationship between God and the people that we consider to be men in the physical world. And therefore, it requires clarification that it's only a borrowed term. So that would be one reason why the Rambam feels obligated to describe Isha and Isha over here. However, many other commentaries disagree, and they say that this chapter is transitioning to a different topic that the Rambam promised us that he would be discussing in Mora Nebuchim, which is Maise Baratheis, the act of creation. And to try and explain to us this very mysterious topic Remember, there were two mysterious topics that the Rambam said that he needs to clarify. In Moreh Nebuchim, one is Maaseh Bereshit, and the other one is Maase Merkava, the act of creation and the act of the chariot, um, which we had explained refers to physics and metaphysics, the nature of what creation is about and how God brought about creation from complete lack of any physicality to the physical world as we know it. So. In this vein, the Rambam is going to, uh, according to this sort of uh, presentation as to what the function of this chapter is, we then are going to launch into our discussion of man and woman who are the crowning creations of God's world. So Isha and Isha are terms that are first were given the meaning of a human male and a human female. The Rambam points out to us that this, the, the first appearance of these words are in the context of a human being, a male human being, and a female human being. Um, and that is, of course, Vayomer Ha'adam, in Perik Bey's Pasuk Chav Gimel, source number one in your sheet, Zos ha'pam etse uvasar me'bisari, It is this time that there is a piece of my piece, or a, uh, uh, an essence from my essence, and flesh from my flesh, lezot Yikare isha, That is the reason that she is called woman, Kime Ish Luka Chazot, because she is extracted from Ish. So therefore the words Ish and Isha are related because Isha means derivative from Ish. Okay? Simple, that's what it means. But of course, this, the first time this appears in in all of Khemish, is in reference to a human being, female and male. Afterwards, they were used figuratively to designate any male or female among the other species of living beings. And therefore, we find that there are other male and female beings other than human that are also referred to as Ish and Isha, but in a figurative way, is what the Rambam writes. Thus it says, and this is the Pasuk in Parshas Noach, that when Noach was gathering together the animals for the ark, what does it say? God says, from every pure animal. This is in Genesis chapter seven, verse two. Take for you shiva, shiva ishvi ishto, take for yourself seven and seven, man and his wife. Man and his wife. Now we're not talking about seven and seven men and women. What are we talking about? Kosher animals. Cows and bulls, Um, uh, you know, rams, male rams and female sheep and so forth. From any animal that is from a non-kosher species, you take two male and female, but it says ishvi ishto. So he says these are borrowed terms. Now, explains the Rambam, it is as if it said male and female. It doesn't really literally mean that they were married, there was no chuppah and kiddushin for these animals, but it still says ish ishto. Thereupon the term woman was used figuratively to designate any object apt for and fashioned with a view to being in conjunction with some other object. And this is where the Rambam says that you can expand ish isha to refer to any kind of (coughs) coupling together of two objects male and female. Now this is where um, some of the philosophical commentaries on the Rambam say that the Rambam here is alluding to, uh, once again maase v'reshit, the act of creation. Because according to Aristotle the act of creation was the ultimate coupling together of two things that need to be joined together as ish and isha in order for creation to come into existence. We had mentioned a while ago in our in our introduction to the guide that the Rambam is an, an Aristotelian in his outlook of what the world is made of and how creation comes about. What are the two ingredients in Aristotelian science for all that exists with, uh, uh, before us today in the physical world? They are known as, in Hebrew, they are known as um, uh, Tsura and Chomer, which means form and matter. Aristotle believed that in order for the physical world to come into existence, there needs to be a combination of um, f- pure formless matter combined with intellect, which infuses, imbues the formless matter with shape, features, characteristics. And when the two come together, you have all that exists in the physical world. There is, like in our example, you have a chair, okay? A chair is comprised of the, the metal that makes the chair or the wood that makes the chair and the image of a chair that is imbued into the chair by the carpenter or the artisan who fashions the chair. So the intellect of the artisan. Is the, is, the, is the ingredient that is imbued within the chair that gives it its chairness, its chair features, and the matter is the material that the artisan uses with which to realize his intellectual vision of a chair. And that is what all of creation is made up of, is the husband and wife, is the ish isha of form and matter and that's really what the Rambam is alluding to although not explicitly he will discuss the matters the issue of form and matter more explicitly later on but this is again part of his explanation of what the story of creation or how god created the universe okay let us go on now before we go any further in this chapter it's a very short chapter just very a small amount of text the talmud itself and our sages are bothered by this terminology of Ishvi Isha. Now, the Rambam has presented us with a philosophical explanation that Ishvi Isha is a borrowed term that does not just mean two um, creatures who are in some way committed to each other as a husband and wife, but rather two um, constructs that belong together naturally, like a hand in a glove or peanut butter and jelly, or Ishvi Isha. That's really the way he's explaining it. But our sages take a much more direct view, and their perspective is that our, the Torah is instructing us about something having to do with marriage, even when it talks about the animals, or at least about some kind of, of, of lesson in chastity, when it talks about the animals being husband and wife. The Talmud in Sanhedrin, page one hundred eight B, tells us: "Mikol um, ha tikach l'cha shiva shiva ish ve Take for yourself uh, animals that are husband and wife. So, ishut le mi'it mi-it la. Since when is there marriage? Since when is the, the institution of matrimony something that exists within the animal kingdom? The Gemara assumes that that just simply doesn't exist. What this refers to is animals who themselves were chased, because we know that the generation that led up to the flood was particularly uh, corrupt and was um, licentious to the extreme, to the point where even in the animal kingdom, this type of of, uh, uh, um, extremely distorted level of sexual activity was running rampant, even in the animal kingdom. In other words, it started with human beings, and the human beings corrupted their environments to the point where even animals picked up on this kind of sexual um, deviance that was in the air, and even the animals became sexually deviant. And therefore, animals were starting to crossbreed and to commit acts with, with other species. So the Gemara basically says only animals who had not succumbed to the deviance that was present in the air at that time were invited onto the ark. And then the Talmud asks the question, well, how did Noah know which animals were, uh, were the good ones and which animals were the bad ones? So the Talmud gives two answers. Either he brought the animals to the ark and if the Ark let them on, then he knew that they, were, that they had been chased, that they had behaved themselves. And if the Ark pushed them back, then he knew that they were not fit to go on to the Ark. That's one opinion. And the other opinion is that the animals came on their own. And that's the image that we have in our mind when we think about the Ark story, is that the animals just walked in to the Ark and Noach did not have to do anything to fetch them. There are other interpretations in our sages and in the medieval commentaries as to why only the mammals are known as Ish ishto. Why are the birds, who were also brought onto the Ark, not called Ish ishto? So the commentaries, there's the Chizkuni and the Toldot Yitzchak, they give different interpretations. One interpretation is because uh, birds do not mate in the same way as mammals. And human beings. The, the type of mating, I, I'm not i am not familiar with ornithology enough to be able to tell you, but it's a different process. The, another explanation is the birth process for birds is different from mammals. Mammals give birth, the, and, the, and human beings give birth the same way as animals do, and birds lay eggs, and so therefore it's not the same, it's not as close of an analogy when we talk about the mating of birds as it is as the mating of um, of mammals. But in any event, you see that this is an issue that's on the mind of our commentaries. The Rambam takes, again, the rational approach, which is that you're reading too much into the words ish isha." All it simply means is is that two things that belong together, that come together, and that they complement each other in their union. Okay, And therefore, the Rambam continues and says, Thus it says the five curtains, uh, I'm sorry. uh, Right, thus it says the five curtains should be coupled together, a woman to her sister, (laughs) Isha el Achota. Hereby it has been made clear to you that the terms sister and brother are likewise used equivocally with figurative meaning, just as with man and woman. So it's not just man and woman that means peanut peanut butter and jelly, but it's also, uh, you know, there are other terms brother and sister, or woman and her sister. Two things that go together that complement each other. Right? So that Pasuk that the Rambam just quoted is referring to the curtains that are placed together to construct the Mishkan, to construct the tabernacle. There we're not talking about pieces of fabric that are siblings, but when we say that they are siblings, it means that they are meant to be coupled together in the very same way. So the Rambam writes that human relationships, human um, relative relationships can sometimes be used as borrowed terms to apply to inanimate objects as well. Okay, now the last thing that I want to do today to really get down to the nitty-gritty of this is to explain that the words ish and isha are really quite um, dramatic when we think about how God made the universe. And instead of just looking at it the way the Rambam presents it, which is that they're used metaphorically, they're used as borrowed terms, or like Pines's uh, um, translation is that they're meant figuratively or equivocally. Um, Other meforshim speak about how the very essence of existence is ish isha, And as we pointed out The commentaries themselves on the Morinavuchim say, form and matter, are the perfect example of Ish Isha. So therefore, the entire structure of all that exists in our world was created as male and female. And what do we mean by that? And this really goes down to the point of why God is known as Hashem Ish Milchama, that God is a man. Okay, right, you know, know, popular, um, uh, you know, uh, popular, Conventional wisdom says that, you know, God is neither male nor female. Um, and that, of course, uh, makes everyone feel comfortable and doesn't, uh, doesn't trigger anyone, right? But the reality is that God is referred to throughout the Bible as being male. So some apologists say that the reason why God is known as male is because every object, whether animate or inanimate, must, either have, a, must have a gender, must be assigned the gender in the Hebrew language. It's either male or female. There's no such thing as a, as a non-male, non-female object. A table has a gender, a chair has a gender. Everything in the physical world is assigned either male or female. That's just the way the Hebrew language is constructed. right? But it's more than that. Um, and th- the fact is, the Hebrew language is designed to reflect creation, that everything possesses actual male and female attributes, because Just like when you're an engineer, Um, you're an electrical engineer, you know the the terms male and female do not just refer to men and women, they refer to plugs and sockets because everything is male and female. Everything in the physical universe is male and female, not just form and matter. Let's take a look at the commentary of the Kliakar for just a few moments before we conclude. His commentary is at the very end of the first chapter of Genesis, where the Torah says Yom Hashishi Vayichulu Hashamayim, that it, on the sixth day, that heavens, um, the heavens and earth were completed. That's what we say in our kiddush Friday night. So we should be familiar with these words. But these four words Yom Hashishi Vayichulu Hashamayim. What is unique or special about these four words? Look at the first letters of those four words. What do they spell out? Hashem's name, the four-letter name of God. And the the Kliaka writes, He's kir Hashem shel arba berasheh tevot elu, that the reason why these four letters of God's name appear here, so the first thing he says is that there are 26 initial generations of mankind before we receive the Torah. The number 26 is significant because that's the gematria, or the numerical value of God's name, of yud k vav of the four-letter name of God. But then he says, But he says, I want you to understand something. The first two letters, Yud and He, of Yom HaShishi, is the appropriate way to complete the story of creation, or the, the first chapter of Genesis, because these two letters represent male and female. The, the letter Yud appears in the word Ish, the letter He appears in the word Isha, so the name of God of Yud-He is the appropriate way of describing the physical universe. And as our sages say, <laughs> everything and anything that God created in His physical universe must be, by definition, either male or female. Um, therefore, theologically, everything in this world is binary, either male or female. This, too, is a trigger for those who believe in multiple genders. But that's not our concern right now. Vinamar, as it says further in Isaiah, Ki beka Hashem tsur olamim, that the Rock of Ages, referring to God, is known by His name of Yud and He, Yud He, in describing the way He made this world. lomar um, yesh dimyon that everything in this world has either a maleness or a femaleness, sometimes one object can have both maleness and femaleness, as we'll explain. Every human being, by the way, has both male and female characteristics. Right? And we'll explain this in just a moment. Kikol Zachar Dimion El nekeva Dimion El He says, Because what is the definition of male and female, of Ish and Isha? The definition of Ish or male is the actor upon. Is the affector. That would be the right word to use. The affector, the mashpia. What is the definition of femaleness? The affected. That is the very definition biblically of Zachar or Nekeva or Ish and Isha. The affector and the affected. Kinekeva ha mushpat min haish. And in the, in the human context, the female is affected by the male, which is why every human being has both male and female attributes because even if a human being is physiologically and morphologically female, she may at times be male in the way that she affects others. So a, a mother is male in the way that she affects her children, okay? A man is female in the way that he learns as a student from his teacher, because he is the affected and not the effector, okay? So your physical gender does not define your, the, the nature of your maleness and femaleness in other respects or in the larger context of what male and female means. Okay, so... All creation, everything that exists in creation, the, everything has a, a male side and a female side, depending upon its context and its position in this universe. So he says, Kei how do we explain this? HaKadosh Baruch HaMashpia HaRishon, God is the first and ultimate effector. And therefore Hanutain Imre Shafa El Ha'olamha Elyon. And he therefore affects the upper realms beyond our world. Avalhuyit Barak Eno Mushpa Mezulato. God Himself is completely unaffected by anything else. The Haulamha Elyon Chozer Umashbiya El Ha'olamha Mtzai. And the upper realm is affected by God, but then it proceeds to affect the next realm of existence the lower realm or the middle realm and then that affects in turn the lower realm and that in a turn affects our world and so therefore it turns out that everything that exists in the universe is both affected and affects other things but then he skipped to the next paragraph bilte lashem <laughs> levado ar haish levad mashpia veino mushpa he says, therefore, the, it turns out that the only um, uh, uh, being that is truly exclusively Ish and not Isha is God Himself. Because He is the only being or existent existence that is purely effector and not at all affected. And therefore, that is why. Hashem is known as the true Ish. Hashem, Ish Milchama. Ultimately, God is the real Ish of of existence. There is no other real, complete, exclusive Ish other than Hashem himself. Everything else that exists is both Ish and the Isha, effector and affected. Okay, now, and therefore skip to the next paragraph. The fact that we find that creations in this world are sometimes called ish and sometimes sometimes called isha, he says, it really is not meant to assign intrinsic ishness to anything in this world, other th- because no existence, no creature can be ish exclusively, except for God. But it's only by comparison to its female counterpart do we call one creature an ish versus the other creature which is Isha. But every existent being is both ish and Isha in the sense of being affector and affected. OK. And therefore, he writes, when we look at, al ba'olam um, hazeh, Habriot habriyot mishtamshim b'shem shaleim, ki'im b'shem shel yudhei. And that is why in this world, the, uh, the way that we think about God is the name of yudhei, which means the creator of all that exists, which is a combination of male and female. That's the way the Kliakar understands why God is known as yud He is the great creator of that universe which is a mixture of Yud and Hey, or of male and femaleness, of manness and womanness. In the next world, he says, um, that w- we will have um, a completion of this world and then we'll have the complete name of God and therefore he goes into the next, which is a little bit uh, off the track of what, of what we're talking about over here. But that's the point. The point that I wanted to make is that man and woman are terms that describe how God made the universe. While one could perhaps suggest that the Rambam once again is trying to distance the anthropomorphic terminology that ascribes some kind of corporeality to God, that seems to be not the major thrust of this chapter, but rather to describe the essence of the way things exist in our universe. And that's why the next chapter, Chapter Seven, which we'll see in three weeks' time when we get when we regroup, is going to discuss parent-child relationships, which also is a necessary type of relationship in order to understand the universe in which we live. Questions, comments? Is there um, if, if we pray to God and we ask for some? Hears our prayers. In any way, does that change quote unquote, God's mind? And then,
1: so God is the affected, effect.
0: and not the, uh, not a, and not, an exclusive effector. That is an excellent uh, question, and that is why, in Kabbalistic literature, God is also known sometimes as female, vis-a-vis the fact, like we, the term Shekhinah, divine presence, is in the female, is in the feminine. So why is that if God is the ultimately the effector? The answer is is that sometimes God allows himself to be perceived as being affected by man. But philosophically that is anathema. Philosophically if we look at the Aristotelian structure of our universe, the, there must be one prime mover who is the unaffected effector. But you're right. Many times in our in the way that um, the Sfarim describe Hashem, not the philosophical yeah. depiction, but rather the way that God wishes himself to be perceived by man as the God of intimacy with man, then God can sometimes have a female quality because he is being affected by man through our prayers and through our actions. Good. Excellent. Yes? How does that, how does that fit in with the concept of Elohim? So if, we're, if man is created with Tzalem Elohim, and God is only Ish and not Ishto. So, how where where do we where do we get our how, how do we what what what's our mission in terms of that? Right. So, being created in the image of your Creator does not mean that you that you are one hundred percent resemblant Because by definition, you cannot be the exact same thing as the as the Creator. But having the image of your creator means that because I've been affected by my creator, I bear his image to be able to affect others. But ultimately, as a a creation of that creator, I am affected by that creator. So therefore, all male and female means is being affected or having the ability to affect others. That's what male and female means. So I'm, in, I'm created in God's image in that he created me to affect others and be Godlike in that respect. But I have to resign myself to the fact that by, ver- by, by, dint of, by virtue of my being not God, but his creation, that makes me female by nature. Okay. We'll pick it up next time. Have a great day. Did you say three weeks? Three weeks, yeah. Three weeks. Okay. Yeah.